Welcome, friends, to another exciting episode of A VGM Journey, and I'm your host, The Messenger. The track that we're playing in today's show is Oil Panic from the game Game & Watch Gallery, and it was composed by Yoko Mizuda and Jun Sugita. We've got a very special show this week with a very special guest. Welcome to the show, Mr. Lee Tyrrell from The Sound Test. Hello. Hello, Alex. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a huge privilege to be here. I mean, it's quite a big honor to have you on the show i mean well you're a big name yourself in the whole vgm community and uh, it's been great to see your show just kind of growing and growing ever since you started about what has it been like a year year and a half now uh, it's been about a year and a half yeah yeah and it's been growing so well man so don't you tie yourself down you're just as big and i'm so glad to be here well i'm glad that you're here it's been far too long since i've gotten in depth on some of this video game music stuff i've been out of the game i mean i've been a little out of the game with having a guest on the show well you've kicked things off perfectly with oil panic because that's an absolute tune and not only that but i remember playing that um on my show where you requested it and not only that using it in the background and i did my little tribute to this show thing on bedroth's show you know i i don't think i ever really had the chance to talk to you about that and i it was a good choice to play that song because it's one of my favorites and just that whole tribute thing man that uh oh that got me feeling a little emotional oh well man that means the world to me i mean i remember bedroth coming to me and uh, putting the idea to me of doing a little tribute and straight away i couldn't get the idea out of my head of like trying to do like a mini episode for you in the kind of style i do yeah i uh i had no idea about it until when the episode came out and it's just like out of nowhere there was just like just this big thing for me and i was like oh my god well i think one thing that um all of your listeners probably know and certainly a lot of people in the vgm community is that you are one of the most supportive people out there of podcasts of composers of everything vgm and you've always been one of the most supportive people of the sound test and man that was just my little way of showing my appreciation well thank you i i appreciate that myself no problem dude and again now following up with an um an appearance on your show we're gonna have to follow this up with you appearing on my show when i finally get started again i would love that absolutely man i'll be in touch as soon as the wheels are rolling again there's still so much left to come obviously on a little hiatus at the moment but it's not over by any means nah you've given me a little opportunity to kind of continue things here tonight as well yeah i uh you know just wanted to have you on the show and you brought a handful of really nice tracks and uh you know why don't you say let's get right into it well i wanted to pick some tracks that were uh, pretty big for me and i wanted to think long and hard about it because you do have a listenership who really knows their vgm so i wanted to bring in some strong strong stuff and uh kind of go i guess a little bit historically through my own life in a way so i wanted to start out with what wasn't even my first console it was my brother's first console the sega mega drive which uh, as anyone who listens to my show knows i just absolutely love uh, those fm sounds available on that chip so to showcase that i picked one of my favorites of all time from road rash uh, red redwood forest uh, that's a bit of a tongue twister isn't it uh, but which is basically kind of vgm rush pink floydy kind of stuff which is straight up my street and uh, i think this was actually composed by a guy called michael bartlow um it could be by rob hubbard but rob hubbard doesn't remember writing it so i'm gonna credit it to michael bartlow all right let's give that a listen <laughs> Thank you. 
All right, that track that you guys just listened to, that was Redwood Forest from the game Road Rash, and it was composed by Michael Bartlow. At least so I think, because it could easily be Rob Hubbard, but I actually think it's funny that a lot of these old uh, composers from the 80s like kind of can't remember big parts of their catalogue. Yeah, I kind of feel like it is a Rob Hubbard track, but... Yeah, because it does sound Rob Hubbardy, definitely in those guitars. Might be some kind of collaboration. Hell, they didn't even remember the uh, the collaborating. They're like, yeah, I think I might have worked on this one part of the song, but maybe it was somebody else. Who knows? Exactly. Well, actually, since we're talking about Rob Hubbard, I remember speaking to him and Ben Daglish, who we're going to come to later on. When they collaborated, they both talked about how drunk they were. And it was just a really amazing drunk evening, which it was almost as if the music was on the side. Oh, man. (laughs) Yeah, so no wonder that they can't remember. Hey, it sounds like a good time. Absolutely, absolutely. And I had total flashbacks then, as I was saying to you, when we were both listening to the music. Sitting in front of this microphone, I just had total flashbacks to the sound test and ended up totally taking over there. So I need to be more conversationalist. And I thought of something. We're kind of doing these early first consoles things because we're going to go from my brother's first console to my first console in a minute. But on the way, I wanted to ask you what your first console was. My first console was the Super Nintendo. Oh man, well that's perfect. Same here. Which I believe that your next track is a Super Nintendo track. If I'm looking at this uh, this track listing right. Yep, that is correct. Before I get into that, I do want to ask you, what is your experience with Road Rash? Oh man, well, um, as I say, that predates me even having a console myself. So I was so young, uh, but it's those earliest gaming memories playing two-player, at least I think it was two-player Road Rash with my brother. If it wasn't, we were alternating turns all the time. It was one of the biggest games that I can remember from my childhood uh, from the Sega Mega Drive or the Genesis for you guys. And uh, it was basically switching between that and Streets of Rage up until I was about six years old and finally got a Super Nintendo for myself. So nothing but uh, Road Rash and nothing but attempting to hit the cop that chases you off his uh, motorbike with the truncheon. But I think it's impossible. Yeah, to be honest, I actually don't have too much experience with Road Rash. Uh, The only Road Rash game I've played was Road Rash 2. Right. And it was just just for a little bit. Which is ironic, because I don't think I've played the second one. Uh, But yeah, the the amount of hours I've put into the first, I couldn't even begin to count. Uh, But yeah, it was just that mix of racing and violence uh, that obviously GTA got down perfectly years later. Yeah, I can't really think of too many games that were just like Road Rash at that time. There was like something, there was something extreme about it in those like innocent early 90s days. There was something like genuinely extreme about hitting someone off uh, the motorbike. And not only that, but the sound of the music is just so incredible, as you guys will have just heard, that like those guitar sounds sounds so twangy as you put it alex and edgy it's just it actually really grabbed hold of me as like a four-year-old kid is i think it's amazing that music can have that kind of impact yeah i think it's the type of music that i think it could turn off some people but i think it's quite amazing yeah that's interesting um i'm a huge prog rock fan as i say i always liken this tune to uh rush and pink floyd so It's just straight up my street. I could just imagine Rush playing this. 
Well, if Rush was playing it, then they would have called it Road Rush. <laughs> you know, I, all, all the years I've been comparing that to Rush, I've never thought of that. God damn it, man. That's a good one. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I, honestly, I just came up with it on the spot. I'm going to have to remember that one for when I come back. Oh, man. I think I've played the entire Road Rush soundtrack, like, probably three times on my show over the years. Yeah, I... I might be misremembering this, but one of my listeners, uh, I believe it was Scott McElhone, he uh, requested a track from Road Rash like so many episodes ago. So I believe this is the second time I've played Road Rash on the show. Yeah, I always uh, tilt between this and another tune. So um, I'm willing to bet it's that. I'm going to have to look back on that one. I can never remember their names. Uh is there any other thoughts that you have on Road Rash? Or... Um, not really, because, uh, you know, it's not something I've ever played in adulthood. Um, yeah, it's funny, I've never really gone back to it. It's, it's, it's maybe that those memories I've got of playing it with my brother as a child are just, like, so amazing and crystallized. I kind of don't want to ruin it. Well, are you feeling like you're ready to move on to your next track? Absolutely, yep. Well, uh, kind of continuing this theme of early consoles things, I say I kind of wanted to have a semi-historical thing going on, so at least I'd have some things to talk about beyond the same topics that come up, Um, which is Donkey Kong Country, which pretty much lit the fire for me loving video game music. I mean, obviously, we've talked about Road Rash and how that picked me up as well. But as a kid, I got distinct memories of watching my brother play it on my Super Nintendo, no less, and not even caring about the game for the first time and just totally zoning out on the incredible use of sound, uh, specifically on Donkey Kong Country 2, but we're going to play something from the third one. Yeah, the track that you were bringing is called Nuts and Bolts, which was composed by Evelyn That's pretty good pronunciation, man, because I had to ask her straight up. I had to say to Evelyn when I interviewed her, I've got no idea how to pronounce this. Help me. I think randomly there was like some video that I was watching uh, talking about the Donkey Kong Country series and like they, the uh, the guy that did the video, he just pronounced uh, her last name just like that. Yeah. So I was like, okay. Well, at first I was thinking it was Novakovic. Is that what? Oh, I've lost it now. So many different ways to pronounce that. I had about eight in my head. How was it actually pronounced? Remind me. Novakovic? I don't know if it's Kovic or Kovic. I remember her saying it was Kovic. But I was um, obsessed with the idea that it was Novakovic at first, which sounds kind of like a footballer. Yeah, it kind of does. Yeah. Uh, But before we go into the track quickly, I did want to say the reason why I've picked uh, Evelyn is because I've always been a huge champion of her work. And obviously when talking about the Donkey Kong Country stuff, often what first comes to mind is David Wise, who is one of the all-time top composers. There's no doubt about it. Uh, But I've always said on my show it's annoying to see a lot of Evelyn's work, who did a lot of Donkey Kong Country 3 and the first game, getting credited to David Weiss. So I always try and champion Evelyn's amazing work wherever I can. And of course, it was a real honor to interview her a couple of years ago as well. Well, let's see if we could, you know, win some people over and play this track. Let's hope so. Listen out for the bass line. That's all I'm going to say.
All right, that track that you just listened to, that was Nuts and Bolts from the game Donkey Kong Country 3, and it was composed by Evelyn Novakovic. There we go. Seems like we're nailing that pronunciation down. It's a tough one. You know what I'm going to ask you. <laughs> so Go ahead. How come you picked this track? Well, as I say, I, I always want to um, champion Evelyn wherever I can, and I feel like I had to play something from the Donkey Kong Country series because... I'd say it's actually the single most important influence on me loving video game music from a young age because those sounds from the whole Donkey Kong Country series really did just blow me away. But as I say, I had this thing where I wanted to play uh, stuff from Evelyn and there were some more obvious tracks that I could have played from the first Donkey Kong Country like uh, Simeon Segway's one of her big tunes. Uh, but Donkey Kong Country 3's soundtrack is really, really underrated in the grand scheme of things. And there's some really wonderful tracks tucked away in there. And Nuts and Bolts is just one of them. Yeah, I was saying to you when we were listening to it that I'm like a huge sucker for a really good bass line. And I was enjoying that quite a bit. Yeah, and uh, I do the... Well, I used to do it a good couple of years ago now where I did little streams where I played bass along with uh, video game music. I never actually learned that one. I'm going to have to... Uh, go and put that in a new set and do a new video. And I did agree with you on your comment on that soundtrack being pretty underrated. I mean, it was a pretty tough act to follow Donkey Kong Country 2. I mean, that soundtrack is absolutely amazing. Mm -hmm. And we, we were saying uh, when we were listening to that music as well that um, that is my second favorite soundtrack of all time. So yeah, tough act to follow. Absolutely. There's no doubt about it. But yeah, there is some really great stuff tucked away uh, on that third one as well. Uh, but for me, that game was one that I never actually owned. And it was one that I always played at a cousin's house. And it really annoyed me that I never owned it. It was a big game like that. Did you have anything like that? Like a game that you had to play at a friend's house because you didn't have it, but you wanted it so much? I guess for me would be Halo at right. the time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was one for me as well because I didn't have the Xbox early on. Yeah, I wound up getting a 360 like later on and then just playing like a whole bunch of Halo 3. Man, that sounds like pretty much the same way I approach things. I was slow on the Xbox. So, I mean, for me, I was like... I think even to this day, like I'm like a huge Nintendo fanboy. So I was like, I was like, oh yeah, you know, I just gotta have like all the Nintendo systems, you know. I'm not gonna, not gonna do anything with PlayStation or or Xbox or or anything like that. And then, well, I can't lie, I was always a, a big Nintendo loyalist, and um, I was right up until the Wii U. But I have to say, I jumped directly on the PlayStation train, man. I'm a big PlayStation boy. <laughs> But getting back to Donkey Kong Country 3, I will admit that this is the only Donkey Kong Country game I've never played. Yeah, it's like that an elusive gem. As I say, I could only play it for like tiny little bits at a cousin's house. I do have a copy of it. I mean, it's kind of sitting on my shelf collecting dust, I guess. But I will eventually play that game. I remember the game itself being a bit underrated as well. Like... Yeah, again, it's no Donkey Kong Country 2, but come on, that's one of the greatest games of all time. Donkey Kong Country 3 is still a damn lot of fun. I guess a lot of people's issues with the game was 
not being able to play as Donkey Kong or Diddy. And, That's true. And, like, I, they were fine with playing as Dixie, but they all seemed to hate uh, Kitty Kong. Yeah, I definitely wasn't a fan, and that's for sure, because he seemed to be playing the exact same role as Donkey Kong anyway. And I don't know, it just kind of was just given this vibe of like, oh, I don't know, maybe this game is for babies or something, which that's kind of dumb. No, no, I can definitely get that feeling, definitely. But by that point, um, I was just an absolute Donkey Kong fanboy. I think that was probably my favourite series when I was a kid, like up until like the age of 10 or something, when I discovered Oddworld. And the the visuals, I will say, I'm quite impressed with them. Astounding. Yeah, they're so good. I mean, Donkey Kong Country 1 and 2, like, they were both, like, visually impressive games. But I feel like the team at Rare, they really got comfortable with that that style of graphics. And, like, a lot of the environments seem to have, like, a lot of detail. Well, I think I might be wrong on this. But I believe that Donkey Kong Country 3 was one of the last games to come out on the Super Nintendo, uh, like right at the end of its lifetime. So there might have been some crossover with the N64 coming in, and we know that Rare were going all guns blazing on those games uh, for the N64, so maybe they were just like busy with with the transition into the next generation. Yeah, I want to say it came out just months before the 64 came out. Yeah, yeah. It was one of those late-stage ones, like Mario RPG. That's another game that I think looks fantastic. Absolutely. I completed that for the first time just a couple of months ago. Incredible stuff. And I know that like a lot of people, they really didn't like the soundtrack as much. I mean, I think a lot of what I was hearing was they didn't really like how atmospheric like a lot of the tracks were, but... Is this on uh, Donkey Kong Country 3? Yes. Yeah, well, that's interesting you should say that, because um, that was kind of exactly what Evelyn was doing on the first Donkey Kong 2, was a lot of the more ambient tracks were Evelyn's stuff. And she spoke about that in my interview uh, with her as well, where that is just kind of where she naturally falls into, for sure, definitely. I mean, honestly, like, I think it was a good direction to go with the music so it just gives off like it gives off like a certain vibe that i just think really fits with donkey kong there's there's a track that i came really close to choosing uh, for your show today i think it's called treetop rock also by evelyn but i changed it right at the last minute to nuts and bolts and good track. Uh, yeah that that track it like really is the dk sound actually like besides all the obviously you've got the big bombastic brass and drums side of it but like if you go back to uh early memories of playing those donkey kong country games that that evelyn uh atmosphere that goes through a lot of it is such a huge part of the donkey kong country sound as well yeah i just find it a bit unfair that you know a lot of people they just gravitate towards like all the dave wise stuff and like you were saying earlier like you know even some of these other tracks like they would actually miscredit them and say that dave wise was the composer when in actuality it was evelyn yeah exactly and like I just don't want there to uh, be any kind of changing of history kind of thing. Because as I say, wherever I found a cover of Evelyn's stuff or like just it uploaded to YouTube, it was almost unanimously credited to David Wise. And I'm in quite a few of the comment sections uh, trying to correct that. 
And uh, obviously, we should be champion uh, championing that kind of diversity as well in video game music. Where here we have a female composer as well, and crediting it to a male composer—that's kind of strange. Yeah, it is a bit strange. But that's okay. There's no way Evelyn's going to be forgotten because, in fact, I, um, she has definitely got her own massive fandom for sure. You you see it in the uh, in the comments of her tunes all over the place on YouTube. Well. I am going to ask you this, though. Like, is there anything else that you want to say about Donkey Kong Country or Donkey Kong Country 3? Well, I could speak all night about the first Donkey Kong uh, Country, the first two, so no. And I think I've said all there is to say about Donkey Kong Country 3. So uh, now I think we need to go back in time a little bit, don't we? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, because this is the kind of exception of my little historical journey where we go back in time to before I was even born. Um, which is, well, you tell me uh, quickly, Alex, like, when did you come across the C64 scene and the whole Commodore 64 fandom that's out there in that universe? Well, to be honest, it kind of just happened in the last 10 years just through listening to various different video game music podcasts because that was like a whole entire world that I was completely unaware of that's it i've got no history there because i wasn't even alive back then it's not something that was in my sphere of influence whatsoever and um it was only as i started researching the history of video game music for my own uh, podcast that i stumbled onto the c64 scene and realized that that and the demo scene and the amiga and the spectrum and all of that kind of thing is just it's a world of its own. And I absolutely fell in love with it. And this next track that we're going to play uh, from Hades Nebula, it's all of these are very obscure games now. The track is just number two because these um, song uh, songs didn't even have titles back then. Uh, it's by Ben Daglish. And it was um, when I was researching for an episode with him and Rob Hubbard that I stumbled across C64 music. I'd never heard anything like it. It completely and utterly blew my mind. So if you'll just allow me to take over your show for another minute, Alex. That's what I say about um, Ben Daglish and the un- and about the unfortunate fact that he happened to pass away during the time when I was working on my interview with him, which just so happened to be the last interview we ever did. So Ben Daglish means the absolute world to me, not just the fact that his music is incredible, but that that sad, horrible thing happened to happen will always make his music super mega important to me. So I had to bring this to the show, number two from Hades Nebula. Thank <laughs> you. 
All right, that track that you guys just listened to, that was, I guess we're going to call it number two. <laughs> yeah, they, they didn't have track titles back then. They didn't even bother. It was from the game Hades Nebula, and it was composed by Ben Daglish. And how about that guitar solo? That was pretty amazing. I know you were you gave me a heads up on it, but I still wasn't prepared for how good yeah. that was. There was this really strange thing going on in the 80s where uh, a lot of these old C64 composers like Jerome Tell, uh, Ben Daglish, Rob Hubbard, Chris Hulsbeck, all the classics, they were all trying to out guitar solo each other. It's crazy. If, if you listen to a lot of those old C64 tunes, they always end up turning into a massive guitar solo. And yeah, it is almost as if they were all trying to say, I well, I've heard that, I can do that better. More, I can put more bent notes in. I can put more quick trills. And it just really got out of hand in a good way. Well, it seems like a lot of our favorite composers... They got their start making C64 music. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's there um, in a lot of the early careers, for sure, and, and in some surprising examples as well. I mean, to be honest, like I really don't have too much to say about this game, because I've never heard of it. And No, if, if you were to turn to me and ask me, like you have with the other tracks, oh, so could, could you talk about your history, your experience with Hades Nebula. Absolutely not. No. I, I only know of this amazing track. I, I, I have never played a C64 game in my life. And, and I hate to have to admit that. But, because I'm pretty deeply embroiled in the whole 64, C64 scene. But I've never sat down and actually played one. It's just all the incredible music. I can't figure out a C64 emulator, my word. I mean, just five minutes ago, I lost my... Hades Nebula virginity like (laughs) (laughs) yeah this tune is all I know of of the game I think when it comes to C64 stuff I have I've watched a let's play of uh, Monty on the Run which was one of uh, Rob Hubbard's big themes and yeah it's like it's fun to watch and it's an interesting retro thing but I think even the people back in the 80s who programmed these games would accept that they haven't aged well yeah, actually, I do, I can see that, I guess, slightly off topic, but, you know, I've played the uh, the Rare Replay uh, collection on uh, Xbox One, and, like, a lot of their games on there, you know, they were from the uh, ZX Spectrum, and, like, right, I, right. like, I was just playing this stuff for, like, a couple minutes, and I'm like... I'm like, I get that there's some, like, historical value, you know, with these games, but I just cannot get into it. Well, now that you mentioned the ZX Spectrum, that's something I always kind of forget about. Uh, my dad did have one, and uh, I do have a few early hazy memories of playing Advanced Pinball Simulator and Hong Kong Fui on the uh, ZX Spectrum. And back then, they seemed great, but... Man, who can wait 30 minutes for a cassette to load? Well, it seems like a lot of people had a lot more patience for stuff back then. Absolutely. Well, we didn't have the internet (laughs) to distract us. Uh, But it is worth mentioning quickly um, that uh, this track 
as well as like several other Ben Dalglish classics, are, is available completely for free um, on an awesome album. Um, I think it's called Sid Effects 2. If you search that on uh, c64audio.com, you can get that track and loads more from Ben Dalglish in total full quality, totally free. So enjoy. You know, I think I will throw a link to that in my show notes. It's always worth it, man. There's loads of free stuff over there. And anyone who's interested in um, hearing more from the C64 scene, that's for sure the place to go. So, I mean, we got to do everything we can to preserve this stuff and make sure that it's not forgotten. Absolutely. Uh, especially since, as we both have admitted, uh, we've not really sat down and played this uh, stuff. So we need to do everything we can, even if we're not playing it. So, I mean, I was, I'm totally in the same boat as you. Like, you know, this is a lot of stuff that came out before I was born. So, But you go back and listen to some of those classic tunes by someone like Jerome Tell. And there's no denying it. This is some of the greatest VGM of all time. And and also like the historical aspect of it and, and the, the interesting nature of the um the limitations that they had to deal with and, and the those rudimentary electronics. You could actually like do a a kind of semi electronics degree just reading about those early VGM innovations. It's fascinating. It is quite impressive with how much they could accomplish with so little. Yeah. Yeah, three channels often, I believe, on the C64. Yeah, they could make that bad boy sound like there were six different instrumentalists playing. Fantastic stuff. That's uh, that's exactly how I feel about Tim Fallon. Oh, yeah, uh, Tim Fallon's the man. No doubt about it. He did some stuff on the ZX Spectrum that is like alchemy. I've got no idea how he did it. So, uh, <laughs> oh, man, I just got myself just a little giggly right now. Um <laughs> Tim Fallon will do that to you, man. Yeah, that's a that's a man that always puts a smile on my face, no matter what. Absolutely. I am still sniffing down an interview with that man. I'm not going to give up. Uh, is there anything else you want to say about this track? Uh, no, uh, there's no need dwelling on the whole sad nature of Ben's passing away. Just uh, celebrate his fantastic music. Uh, we've got a link up to some free music, which is great stuff. And we've talked about preserving the scene, so... I think that just about does the trick. All right. So what else do you have for everyone today? Well, again, this kind of naturally falls into place, and I didn't mean for this to happen, but I've got something from Mark TDK Knight, who um, mostly, well, first made a name for himself through a lot of Amiga stuff, I believe. But he was actually friends with Ben Dugleish, and I believe actually learned some of the ropes from uh, Ben Dugleish on how to compose chiptune early on. And TDK has gone on to just be one of the most prolific VGM names ever. Just, just If you look at him on Moby Games, his list of games that he's worked on is so diverse and unbelievable. He's done loads of stuff on racing games. This is from a racing game uh, called Cyberspeed. Uh, again, Alex, don't ask me for any impressions about this game because I've never actually played it. All right, um, I was just lucky. Yeah, I was just lucky enough to speak to TDK for three hours. He's one of the most friendly and most talented men in the VGM industry, and there's no doubt in my mind that he is quite simply not spoken about enough. So here's one of my absolute favourite tunes of his, Cluffy Flouds 2.
All right, that track that you guys just listened to, that was Cluffy Flouds 2 from Cyberspeed Unleashed, and it was composed by Mark Knight, a.k.a. TDK. And I, I will admit, I'm cheating a little bit here, uh, because Cyberspeed Unleashed is like the kind of remixed, remastered uh, album that TDK did of that stuff, so it's not fully authentic VGM, but... If you go on the Bandcamp of that stuff, I believe he does talk about using all the original uh, samples and things like that. So it's it's still nicely authentic. It's too banging not to play. Yeah, actually, I thought it was pretty cool. It was, in a weird way, I thought it was pretty chill. Yeah, yeah, it, it kind of is, yeah. I mean, uh, I think it's referencing some of that uh, dance music that was going on in the British scene in the 90s at the time, because it's called Cluffy Flouts. And uh, there was a big famous track around the time uh, for a band called The Orb called Fluffy Clouds. And there's some uh, similarities uh, in the two tracks. So I don't. I think that was pretty deliberate. I'd have to look into that. And they, they were very much a kind of like chilled out electronic band rather than like Prodigy who were in your face. So I actually don't really talk about it too much, but I do like a lot of those pretty chill electronic uh, types of music. I don't really play too much of that kind of stuff on this show, so this was really nice. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. I'm glad to hear that. Because I was hoping I could bring some uh, little novelties. I definitely didn't want to accidentally bring some stuff that you've played lots before. Hey, I welcome all kinds of different music on this show. I, I like to have like quite a variety of different sounds and styles. And, and I, don't, I don't think you can avoid that. As a VGM fan, I, th- I think to be a VGM fan is is kind of putting that on your chest that you are into so many different sounds. Because I don't understand how you could be a VGM fan, but only into metal VGM or only into orchestral VGM. Uh, I mean, I, I think most people are into this amazing wide church of stuff that goes from the C64 right up to the orchestral stuff of today. I feel like, at the very least, you've got to enjoy electronic music. Oh, for sure. If you're into retro uh, VGM. Yeah, for sure. Like, not so much with the modern stuff, which, I mean, there are still quite a bit of that kind of stuff in the modern scene. But way back then, I mean, if you're into video game music, then you've had to be, like, into electronic music. Yeah, Because, I mean, uh, Road Rash being some of my first experiences, yes, it's like electric guitar, bass, drums, so it's kind of rock sound. But it's still, it's essence. It's electronic music. And uh, same goes for all of that Super Nintendo stuff. All of that early chip tune is electronic music. So yeah, there's no avoiding that. And um, it kind of annoys me if there's people out there who make the kind of distinction between orchestral VGM as being proper that's proper music. Now video game music is playing proper music. No, it always was proper. It was just played on different things. I mean, there was a little while that I thought maybe VGM was not heading in a good direction, especially with like the like AAA big budgeted titles. It was one of those things that in hindsight, I was quite wrong about, and that I've actually gone back and listened to it, and, and I just thought to myself, like, you know, this is actually pretty good stuff. Well, it's always a kind of double-edged sword, because um, 
back in the C64 days, yes, you could have all these great guitar solos, but my God, a lot of the soundtracks were completely and utterly unlistenable. Uh, but then you go into the orchestral stuff, and that allows for some, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me, some of the greatest VGM we've ever heard from the likes of Austin Wintery, Gareth Coker, and things like that. But then that too, it does come with this, with the AAA and the boring side of it and the generic side of it, where there are a lot of games out there which have gone so far as to just have um, unlicensed, copyright-free orchestral warblings over the top that don't mean anything. And that's like really taking a big step back when it comes to video game music. So, you know, yeah, there are pros and cons with everything is essentially what I'm trying to say. Yeah, and I think that was the kind of stuff that I was mainly like, that was that kind of stuff that was just getting thrown into people's faces and it just kind of set off a, a bad impression of how things were heading by i mean when you like look past like that kind of stuff and you actually just dig in a little bit like there are a lot of good stuff that people are just not taking a chance on i guess absolutely i mean if we're talking about tdk at the moment and and, and stuff like that it, i mean it was really through my interviews and only through my interviews that I stumbled across soundtracks to games like um, Cyberspeed. And uh, I think a lot about uh, Russell as well, Russell Shaw, who did the music for Fable. He's got loads of soundtracks under his belt from before that, like electronic, chip tune kind of stuff, that just like, honestly, nobody would be listening to this stuff anymore unless they played the game. It just hasn't survived for some reason. But it's incredible, amazing stuff. And that's what I think Cluffy Flouds is an example of, personally. And I think us being VGM podcasters, I mean, I'm sure that we've probably ran into quite the opposite with stuff where, you know, we're not even really familiar with these games at all, but we're quite familiar with their their soundtracks. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, all the time. Like, uh, Persona 5's a big one for me lately, uh, because... I think I must have played like half of the Persona 5 soundtrack on my show at this point, both because it's awesome and secondly because I had a listener who requested it often, uh, shout out to Lewis. But yeah, I know that soundtrack like the back of my hand, but I don't know the first thing about the game. Yeah, I mean, there's quite a number of soundtracks where I could say possibly like, you know, one of my most favorite soundtracks of all time. And yeah, I mean, I'm with you like where I couldn't even tell you a single thing about the game itself. Yeah, well, we've had that with Hades Nebula as well, yeah. Pretty much all that C64 stuff. Yeah, I mean, even um, Donkey Kong Country um, 3 that we played earlier on, I'm pretty sure I never heard that in-game, ever, because I barely played the damn thing. But yeah, I know, again, I know it's soundtrack like the back of my hand. And actually, I'm just going to kind of just throw, like, an interesting thought out there. Like, I feel like there's a pretty good chance that... I don't, I'm just going to just th- throw a year, like, I don't know, like 50 years from now, you know, we look back, you know, into these games, like, uh, are people going to, like, more than likely just remember the music and not so much the games? I think in some like, cases that that's much? possible, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I can't really think of, like, specific examples. I don't know, I guess I'll just say, like, Silver Surfer on the NES. That's a great example. You know, that... Tim Fallon that again, amazing right? Tim Fallon soundtrack. Yeah. Like, are people going to, like, just totally forget about these games, but only remember the music for it? Well, 
Dude, that's a really interesting point, actually, and I like it. And it's brought me to something from my recent interview uh, with Peter McConnell, where we were talking about his use of a Tchaikovsky piece, the 1812 Overture. And um, I promise this is going to tie into what you were saying. But that actually had this huge historical context um, where it actually meant something about a Russian victory over Napoleonic forces. And uh, it had kind of this historical narrative context that was very rich within the piece. And not only that, but a lot of other classical music is like that. It, it, it was for something. It was written for something in a lot of cases. I also think of Eric Satie, who I'm a big fan of. I think... I might be wrong here, but I'm pretty sure he wrote music for circuses, which now we just listen to as classical pieces. Now, that's the same as what you're saying there, is we've forgotten all about the circus, say, uh, but we've still got the music. I think it's entirely possible that, yes, there will be many games that are completely lost to the sands of time, but its theme tunes are still well known. I might be wrong about the circuses, but, you know, my point still remains. I just feel like a lot of the classic vgm i mean they've just lived on as long as they have and i think that i think eventually they'll probably just even outlive the games themselves because you know a lot of it is so good but i think also i would say the music is a lot more accessible yeah than the games themselves absolutely and certainly in some cases yeah but i mean it's also true of films too like i mean i hate to admit it sorry guys but i have never been a big star wars fan and in fact i think i actively Mm. dislike star wars having said that there's no way that you can dislike that incredible soundtrack so for me i'm doing a lot of listening to the star wars soundtrack no watching of the films. Yeah, the uh, the John Williams score is like a huge factor of why I like Star Wars. Yeah, and if I let myself go a little bit, then yeah, I think it could melt me in there as well. That's just, it's only because I'm a big Trekkie, my man. It's that old rivalry. I guess it just also had me thinking like, man, you know, like the main point of having like these soundtracks and stuff is it's supposed to enhance your experience with the games that you're playing. And I feel like that is the case with a lot of video games. Well, if the, if the soundtrack's not working, it, it sticks out like a sore thumb. There's, there's no doubt about it. And um, I think it was C418, obviously, who did the stuff to Minecraft, who said when I interviewed him that music is the most important part to uh, set the atmosphere. Yeah, I can't think of too many examples where, like, the music totally turned me off on the game. It seems like when I normally do think of bad VGM, uh, it's often paired with, well, a bad video game. Indeed, because it's kind of like a bad production in, in whole. It seems like, I think, for me, like, there's not too many good games that I, I could think of that has a terrible soundtrack. Maybe like a forgettable soundtrack, yeah. but not like an like a downright terrible soundtrack. Yeah, I'm struggling. I mean, the the only thing that comes straight to my mind is not even a full soundtrack. Um, but I've been playing the hell out of the Final Fantasy VII remake, 
uh, recently. And while its soundtrack is incredible and has done a fantastic job of updating those classic Nobuo themes, what is going on in Wall Market? It sounds absolutely terrible. And I think, that, again, the section of the game is, is amazing fun. But I've got to say, Alex, now we're on the subject of it, that the music brought it down for me. That just that little bit of the game, that it was so bad that I was having a lot less fun because of it. Now that I think about it, I've never played the game, but I can imagine that the, uh, I believe it's like the, the director's cut of the original Resident Evil on PlayStation. There is a track that I think is like over the top, just terrible. I mean, it just sounds like farting horns. I might have come across that, that, man. I know I've been through the Resident Evil soundtrack in the past and thought a lot. Mm, no, that's not right. Yeah, I could imagine that, you know, if I was playing that game and then I heard that, I would have I just shut my system off. Well, you're going... We've been speaking about a few of my memories uh, today. That takes me directly back to being, like, seven years old and exactly that happening. Uh, Resident Evil was terrifying. I can't tell you how terrifying to a seven-year-old kid. I still am not in a rush to play it. I know that you have one more track for me. So, what you got? One more track, and it's an interesting one, especially since we were talking about how much music can enhance a game. This is the most up-to-date one, Easy, uh, from Hypnospace, Outlaw, which I completely fell in love with about a year ago, uh, having to interview uh, Jay Tholen, the creator, about it. Now, it's kind of an old internet simulator, trying to simulate what the internet was like uh, at the end of the 90s. Uh, But in many ways... The game can sometimes be secondary to this incredible musical world that has been created for the game. So many different fake artists, fake genres, and just hours upon hours of original music in this game. It's unbelievable stuff. It really bowled me over. This is from a fake band called Clifter. It was actually uh, made by a guy called Chris Schlab, I believe. But the fake band within the game is called Clifter. And they're supposed to be an old prog rock band from the 70s. And this is supposed to be one of their old classics called Sport Anthem. Uh, but of course, it was written by Chris Schlab for Hypnospace Outlaw about two years ago. Really fascinating stuff. All right, let's get that one a listen.
That track that we just listened to, that was Sports Anthem. It was composed by the fake band Clifta, and it was from Hypnospace Outlaw. Now, I've already rambled a lot on your show today, and I could talk for a long, long time about Hypnospace Outlaw, so I'll try to keep it relatively brief. But I honest, honestly think that Hypnospace Outlaw is the most interesting game to come in the world of VGM in a long, long time. I think it's fascinating what it's doing. Yeah, it's uh, it's something that I need to check out. I know there's been high praise, and usually when something's highly praised, I feel as though I need to check that out. Well, I had a listener, uh, Jerry, who repeatedly brought Hypnospace Outlaw tracks to my show, and uh, after about three or four, I just... They were all so good and, and so interesting and so different that I just had to try and get an interview with Jay Tholden, who's the guy behind it, and actually buy the game and play through it and actually learn uh, what it meant contextually. And just that world that's been created for the game. I'll try not to go on about it too much, but as I, as I say, there's fake bands, there's fake strange little meme songs, a whole world, so much music, but it's not just that. It kind of goes into... VGM a little bit and has its own little fake MIDI system and goes a little bit into old chip tune but in its own unique way and you can also make your own music with its uh, with its in-game sequencer it's just it's it's ongoingly fascinating I could go on for hours and hours and hours but I'm trying to just sum it up quickly please check it out everybody I know I'm gonna have to and then uh, check out my interview with Jay Tholen. Not just for me, but seriously, because that man lays it all out on the line. And I cannot tell you how fascinating this stuff is. Maybe I should throw that episode on the show notes as well. You know, have everyone check that out. Well, if you're a fan of Hypnospace Outlaw or interested, um, I don't think you'll go away empty-handed. Because, uh, as I say, it's mostly just Jay going well in-depth as to this incredible world that is created. I know I keep saying that, but that is what it is. It's a world of music within one game. Yeah, and I should have brought it up at the uh, at the beginning of the show, but Lee, he is an absolutely like amazing interviewer. Well, I appreciate that. All those sound test episodes, they're like some of the best like interviews like I've ever listened to for for anything. Like it is top-notch stuff. Well, I can't tell you what that means to Hair Man because um, I think anyone who's heard my interviews or if you're going to go off and listen to them, maybe, I think hopefully you'll hear uh, the effort that I put into them. And that's purely because of how much I love this stuff and love the guys who have made this stuff and um, what just want to highlight what's so special about it. And, and there's so, so much to talk about. So much. I mean, I mean, there was quite a bit that I've learned through uh, listening to all your interviews and and just hearing all these stories that I just could never quite imagine, you know, actually happening, and then you know they've they've happened. Well, me too, man. I mean, going through the sound test, th- there's no way that I started the sound test, planned everything out, knew everything that I wanted to talk about, knew every subject that I wanted to cover. There was absolutely no way. I learned so much as I was going along. And uh, some of these certain composers who I interviewed were so helpful and so friendly, helping to teach me. I feel like I've like done a, a degree course or something uh, by doing this. 
Well, you have talked to the the right people. I mean, you know, what better way to learn about VGM than through the actual people that has created, you know, all these video game musics? The only thing left now is I've, I have to learn Japanese. There's a whole continent of incredible composers out there that I can't speak to, thanks to a language barrier. Yeah, I uh, I've never attempted to learn Japanese, but I I heard it's a pretty difficult language to learn. Yeah, no. Again, anyone who listens to my show will know that I barely have a grasp on English. There's no way that I'm uh, learning Japanese. No way. I have considered getting a translator though, paying a translator to get involved. You never know. If we're doing the plugin thing, keep your eye on youtube.com forward slash C forward slash the sound test. I do know a guy that he's pretty fluent in Japanese and he's got like a real good understanding of it. I might have to hook you up with him. Hey, hey, that sounds good. It's definitely something that I've thought about in the past. I mean, we've spoken a lot about my history with VGM here. One last quick thing. I think Final Fantasy VII is probably my top OST of all time. And I'm obsessed with Nobuo Umatsu. I swear to God, that man is not leaving the mortal coil without speaking to me. Hey, that's a really nice goal to have. And I hope that you could pull that off someday. Hopefully. Hopefully. that It's certainly a life's goal. <laughs> I don't really expect it to happen. But that confidence is going to get me through, goddammit. And a good translator. Yeah, I... Uh... I need to make a goal of talking to just one composer. It doesn't even matter who, just somebody. Now, a lot of these guys are so fantastic. They're so up for it. I mean, we were talking in a break earlier about how long we've gone today accidentally just because you can get into the flow with a certain person. And that happens all the time with these VGM composers. They want to talk. I mean, like I was saying before, like, you know, they have these stories that they want to tell, and I'm sure that there's still quite a number of them out there that, you know, they want to get their story out there. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I mean, there are a few that hide under rocks. We've mentioned Tim Fallin. I'm going to entice him out one day as well. I don't know what it'll take, but I'll find it. I think for me, I think by... Uh... <laughs> My uh, dream composer to talk to, and this is going to shock, like, absolutely nobody, but I would love for one day to sit down and talk to Mick Gordon. Oh, right, yeah, of course. I mean, I've tried in the past, but, you know, got to keep trying with that one. He's a busy man. That's a guy that, uh... I think uh, finding finding work is not difficult for him whatsoever. That's absolutely true. I also wonder how sour he is after the whole Doom Eternal thing, but hopefully that won't have stuck with him too much. I will say that was a that was a pretty ugly breakup. Yeah, yeah. I think it reflects badly on the gaming industry, and I hope it hasn't left a bad taste in his mouth, and he doesn't just like piss off to do TV or something. I know he's working on that that Atomic Heart game, which oh, I've, right. I've heard some stuff from that, and I, I thought that was sounding pretty good, so... Well, that's a good start. That's what I want to hear. Um, oh, man, I that guy I could probably talk about for hours, too, but I should probably See, stop myself. This is it. We've got two complete VGM nerds here. This is bound to happen. We're trying to wrap up the show, trying to do the plug-in, but we still end up talking about some nuances of video game music. And um, 
that's not just the fact that they're VGM nerds. I think that speaks to just how much there is to talk about with this stuff and why we podcast about it incessantly. So hopefully maybe that ties up some of this long rambly show for you. I guess I'm just going to kind of throw things over to you, uh, Lee. Do you have anything that you want to plug? Well, I've already mentioned you can find the sound test on youtube.com forward slash C forward slash the sound test. It's on everywhere else like Spotify and iTunes and everything. You'll find it if you just search the sound test. But if you don't mind, Alex, I won't mind pushing my little EP that I worked on recently, which is this weird kind of hybrid VGM kind of thing. Uh, called Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, where I've gone back and written some uh, music for a game from the 80s that never had a soundtrack. So I'm creating a fantasy soundtrack and trying to imagine what the music might have been like. And uh, you can find that if you go to greentearooms.bandcamp.com. And that is T-E-A, property, Green Tea Rooms. I'll definitely throw all that in the show notes and have everyone check that out. I really appreciate that, Alex. I think that if you're a fan of old-school VGM, particularly like uh, maybe Amiga-sounding kind of stuff, you'll probably get something out of it. Is there anything else? I believe that's it, Alex. I really appreciate uh, you welcoming me onto the show today and giving me the chance to do a bit of plug-in. So, no, I'm all good. Thank you. Well, I will say thank you for coming on the show. I mean, I was... I was really excited about all this, and I can tell that this episode, it's going to turn out fantastic. I can't wait to hear the final thing, and it's uh, it's been an absolute pleasure to come on and uh, speak to you today. I think I said at the start of the show, yeah, it's been far too long since I've gotten in deep about VGM, so thank you. Well, you're welcome. I'm glad that you were able to bring some amazing tracks and and talk about them it's been a fantastic time alex and we'll have to make sure it's not the last one either yeah i gotta i definitely have to have you on the show again we've both got um deep deep wells of vgm to draw from still lots to talk about i know that much yeah i i know that whenever this show ends you know whenever that (laughs) might be yeah i know that i was only scratching the surface of all the amazing VGM that is out there. I know that, for there's sure. There's so much. I know for sure that I, you know, won't be able to play everything. Well, I feel all invigorated now, and uh, might have to look into doing some remastered versions of my old show. So we'll see about that. But uh, you've given me enough of the floor on your show today, Alex. So I'll say thank you once again, and thank you to your listeners uh, for giving me the time of day. If you've stuck with the episode. And I'll give it back over to you, Alex, because you've got to finish up this thing. Yeah, yes, I do. And thank you once again. No problem. If you like what you've been listening to, you know, have your friends check out the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever podcatching service that you could think of. I'm more than likely going to be on there. You can email the show at vgmjourney at yahoo.com. And we're also on Twitter at VGM Journey. I also have a Discord server for the show, which I will provide a link for that in the show notes, where you can hang out with your fellow VGM Journeymen and talk about games, music, and even look at some cool art. Hell, Lee's on there too. Yes, I am. I've also started a Patreon for the show, which I will also throw a link for that on the show notes. And if you pledge at the $3 tier, 
you get access to a monthly Patreon-only bonus show that I host with my fiance Carly called a VGM Side Quest. It's pretty much just a lot of talking about games and music. Surprisingly, there's no art on that show. And at the $5 tier, you get a special Patreon shout-out at the end of every show, which I will thank the following people. John Harrington, John Regan, David Fleming, and Jesse Moore of Game That Tune. So thank you guys for your pledges. We're going to play out with one more track, and I know that Lee loves this track. That's why I specifically picked this track. I wanted to play Bayou Boogie from Donkey Kong Country 2, and it was composed by Dave Wise. So have a good week, everyone. And thank you, Lee, for coming on to the show. And thank you again, Alex. Bye, everyone. And this is a fantastic track.